Hello, everyone, and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today, I am delighted to talk to Amir Farouk Kayahan. You are most welcome, sir. Thanks for having me, Paul. Amir holds a BA in Islamic theology and a BA in German linguistics and literature and Islamic religious education from the University of Osnabrück in Germany. After completing a master's in Islamic studies and history at the University of Oxford in 2022, so that's this year, congratulations, um, he is now pursuing a second master's in comparative literature and critical translation at the same university. His research interests include rational theology, ilm al-kalam, German thought, intellectual exchanges between East and West, and the reception of Islamic thought and literature among thinkers of the European Enlightenment. Today, we will be discussing Immanuel Kant in the Muslim world and the history of causality in the East and West, and also Muslim scholarship in conversation with modern European philosophy. I'll give a, a brief introduction now to Immanuel Kant, and then Amir will introduce the work of noted Muslim thinker, Sheikh al-Islam Mustafa Sabri Effendi. So Immanuel Kant was a German philosopher and one of the greatest thinkers of the European Enlightenment. He was born in the town of Konigsberg in East Prussia in 1724 and died there at an age of almost 80 in 1804. Many jokes have been made about the fact that he rarely left Konigsberg and never went outside his native province in the whole of his life. And also about the fact that he stuck so strictly to a daily routine that the inhabitants of Konigsberg could literally set their watches by him as he walked past their windows. He never married and outwardly his life was entirely uneventful. However, he was not at all the dry stick that my description so far would suggest. On the contrary, he was sociable and amusing, elegant in dress and witty in conversation. It's an ideal dinner partner. And his lectures at the University of Konigsberg, where he was a professor for more than 30 years, were famous for their brilliance. Kant's extraordinary works in epistemology, metaphysics, ethics and aesthetics have made him one of the most influential figures in Western philosophy, arguably the greatest philosopher since the ancient Greek philosophers Plato and Aristotle. Perhaps his most admired and studied work is the Critique of Pure Reason. And here is my copy and um, yes i have read it there we are nice thick as an english translation uh or the cpr for short which is exactly what you'll need after reading it anyway after that appalling joke emir it is over to you sir thank you very much um it might be helpful to note in the beginning that uh, this will be the first session uh and will in which we will try to contextualize an otherwise abstract discussion on causality between the very German philosopher you have mentioned, Immanuel Kant, and uh, Mustafa Sabri Effendi, um, in order to set the stage uh, uh, for the more systematic or philosophical part in our second um, discussion. 
Um, just to start with a short introduction to our second protagonist, um, born in North Central Anatolia uh, in 1869, Mustafa Sabri Efendi was effectively the last known Sheikh al-Islam of the Ottoman Empire. Mm. Means basically that he was the chief jurisconsult, um, so the most authoritative scholar in the whole empire. Wow. And he lived in politically highly unstable times, as we know, um, and witnessed the colonization of Muslim lands, of Muslim territories, and um, the decline of the empire itself. And seeing all Muslim societies under political, economical, and especially intellectual influence of the West, Mustafa Sabri Efendi saw the need to engage with major political and intellectual movements of his time. Um, consequently, he, as a Kalam scholar, uh, has extensively grappled with first inner Muslim debates on topics like miracles or prophethood or, to give a political example, uh, um, nationalism, and also with modern European philosophy in general. And the result of this endeavor is his four-volume masterpiece that is called Mawqiful Aql. This is this work here. Uh -huh. um, and in this work, he basically brings his classical Islamic scholarship into conversation with philosophical and political trends of his time. And one broader topic in his work, which is um, quite extensive and detailed, um, is his discussion with Kant on metaphysics and causality, which was subject of my master's dissertation. And um, in order to understand this very discussion, we uh, definitely need to explore the philosophical and the historical context, because I think uh, um, this discussion we are talking about between both thinkers can be considered as the last chain or one of the last chains of a long dialogue between East and West that has been going on for more than thousand years, actually. Wow. And um, in this regard, the question for today's session are... Um, the different questions are what caused both thinkers and a lot of other metaphysicians before them throughout the ages to think about and talk about causality. And it is actually important to know that there are certain established traditions in this very topic. So it is not a random coincidence, <clears throat> coincidence that people, for example, are reminded of Al-Ghazali's 17th chapter of the Tahafut when they read David Hume's arguments against laws of nature. Yes, and, um, This very tradition uh, goes on and finds his, his, last, uh, um, his last proponent in Mustafa Sabri Efendi. But in order to... So just yeah. to clarify, if I may, that Al-Ghazali obviously predates 
David Hume, the Scottish Enlightenment philosophy by philosopher by many centuries. And it is it is the case when you read Al Ghazali, who died in eleven eleven A.D. That you, you're reading Hume very often, who uh, yeah. anticipates Hume. He he formulates the very philosophical uh, argument. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Some observations that Hume, the Scottish philosopher, developed centuries later. But it's not known in the West. Sorry, let me rephrase that. It's usually not understood in the West that um, some Western philosophy has its precursors or antecedents in Islamic philosophy mm. centuries before. Um, mm. This is just one example you've mentioned, and we see other parallels which you, you may or may not mention. But so there's a very interesting juxtaposition there of Hume and Al Ghazali um, mm -hmm. in what you've said. Despite being 700 years in between them, right? It's 700 years, right? Okay, yes. So, yeah, you're right. That's yeah. Quite yeah. a long time. And yeah. um, mm -hmm. there are actually historically like proven reasons for this. And I think to uh, unpack them and to show them might help us understand the discussion at stake. Mm -hmm. uh, um, an important question in this regard is the question how occasionalism um, uh, as a theory produced, produced in the Muslim world made its way to Europe. And yes. uh, um, why Mustafa Sabri Afendi to give another to ask another question, engaged with Kant more than with other uh, uh, philosophers. And um, in order to answer these kind of questions, um, we will talk about, obviously, after having introduced the idea of occasionalism very quickly, we will talk about uh, um, the intellectual history of this very theory. And uh, in addition to that, the importance of the question of causality why all the philosophers throughout the centuries felt the need to come up with the causal theory in the first place. Mm. And I think uh, um, that shall suffice to locate the particular discussion between Kant and Mustafa Sabri Efendi in its broader context. Mm. And I hope it will also get us, uh, it will also help us to get a sense for the philosophical importance of this very question. Uh, and um, Very good. Very in, addition, good. in addition to the philosophical context, um, I think we also need the historical background because I don't think that a lot of people are even aware that such a major Muslim scholar has engaged with Western philosophy at all. So um, actually, which is which is a shame because he has a much he has much to offer, and therefore the second part of our discussion. Um, will be about like try where we like we will try to understand why this discussion between them 
has occurred and uh, try to summarize his intellectual biography and his work, like what the motivation behind it is, uh, the structure, the sources, and like um, related discussion topics uh, um, with Kant, for example. Can I just ask at this stage, uh, uh, has any of the work of Sabri Effendi been translated into English? Um, not that I know of. I like um, some of the works or the bulk of his works are written in Arabic, some of them in Ottoman Turkish. His major work is, for example, in Arabic. It has been translated into Turkish, but not in any other language as far as I know. So this this, yeah. this, this, indicate, this indicates the very problem that you're alluding to is, is lack yeah. of, the lack of awareness about him in the West. I'm not saying the West equals English language, but mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> at least English uh, mm -hmm. and French and German. But you're not saying you're saying that no European languages. I mean, th th this means we're not going to be most people, unlike yourself, of course, who can read them all. Uh, uh, most people are not going to be able to access his thought anyway, uh, which is which is a terrible shame and, and a cl clearly an, a, a, a lacuna. Mm -hmm. In, in Western scholarship. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And there might be actually some uh, like very historic reasons for this situation, which we uh, will elaborate on uh, over the course of our, dis of our discussion. But very quickly, uh, what is occasionalism and what are its possible alternatives? So to basically have a rough picture in mind. Um, occasionalism is one out of several theories of causality means it is an overall explanation for all causal relationships in reality. <clears throat> what makes it different from other theories, because other theories are also basically dealing with causality as, in concept, as a concept, right? In contrast to, for example, conservationism or concurrentism, um, occasionalism attributes all causal efficacy directly and solely to God and not to any worldly entity. Um, so the <clears throat> question at stake is in all causal relation in all causal theories, what is the relationship between God's causal activity and the causality of created beings, mm -hmm. which is called secondary causation literature? And the occasionalists have a very radical answer to this. They say there is no relationship at all. Indeed. God is the only true cause and there is no genuine secondary causation at all. Which means that the perceived alleged causes that, for example, I uh, um, quench my thirst through water are only occasions for God to create an effect, which sounds obviously quite contraintuitive, but there's more to it. Mm. Um, I just wanted to basically introduce the very rough idea in the beginning. And um, on the other hand, on the or better to say, on the other end of the spectrum, we have conservationism, um, which holds the position that divine action is actually limited to conserve the creation, means that it basically provides its existence, but it has no, uh, um, like uh, divine action is not involved in the agency of human beings. Right. 
Does that make sense? I know, it makes perfect sense to me. So what would be the, so that these are, in origins, that these are Islamic uh, understandings of causality. Um, occasionalism obviously is. What would be the theological or the Quranic rationale for this? Because these ideas are not coming out of a vacuum. They come out, they're theologically mm -hmm. motivated explanations of yeah. the universe around us, uh, the, what we observe, and how we understand causality, cause and effect uh, within it. So what would be the theological rationale for choosing that particular explanation, do you think? Um, I think the biggest motivation behind all of these questions is the theological conviction of the omnipotence of God. Right. So what does it mean that God is all-powerful? Mm. And how does this power manifest itself? That's, I think, the broader discussion. And all the causal theories we are talking about do have actually uh, like God in the equation. So there is no atheistic causal um, a causal right. theory, at least in this very particular context. Right. But they basically try to interpret this all-powerfulness of God in different ways. Right. Uh, and, and then, of course, the, 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 uh, the scriptural basis for that, that would be the Quran, obviously, uh, and the, the Hadith, but principally the Quran <laughs> constantly references God's uh, his greatness, his, his omnipotence, omniscience, mm -hmm. And his uh, almightiness and so on, um, mm -hmm. repeatedly. So this is a natural uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, view to have. Or it comes out of the Quranic data, mm -hmm. uh, but leading to philosophical analysis and explanation in these causal mm -hmm. theories. Clearly, it's actually not only its om his omnipotence, but also his omnipresence. Ah. So what does it mean that God is everywhere and is involved in everything? Because if you just have a like a concept of a distant God. That also has a, like a lot of implications for your spirituality, for example, if he's just not involved in uh, the activities in the world, as, yeah. for example, uh, theistic inclinations tend to say. Um, but uh, in between of these both, both of these positions, namely uh, um, <clears throat> occasionalism and conservationism, we have a third, um, a, a third movement, a third trend. Which is a very do which was the dominant trend throughout Latin Europe, by the way, mm -hmm. namely concurrentism, and it actually even survived up until the early modern period. And to give a, a few like uh, proponents of this last theory, like we talk about uh, Thomas Thomas Aquinas, uh, Luis de Molina, or even Leibniz, who were con who were concurrentists. So, so, so again, concurrentist, but people who believe in the concurrent, so Patrick, mm -hmm. is this the concurrent activity of God and the created order in some right. So way? what they claim to, uh, what they claim is a kind of synthesis of both uh, um, theory, uh, of the um, both other theories uh, we have mentioned, namely, like their common ground of all three theories in this case is that finite substances are dependent on God's creation and conservation. Mm. And um, concurrentism uh, um, does confirm secondary causation mm. against um, occasionalism, but it also involves, and that's the, that's the part where it draws the, draws the line against uh, conservationism, 
it also uh, wants to have God involved as a co-cause. As, so, as a what cause? As a cause, meaning that God and uh, human beings, for example, uh, create something together. Ah, yes. Yeah, I've often come across this expression in Christian th in some Christian theology. Uh, God uh, is called a co-creator. It sounds mm -hmm. quite extraordinary to Muslim ears, but so God, God creates, but mm -hmm. uh, creation also creates. A human mm -hmm. creates. I, I create a pen, but God also creates in the sense that He creates the space-time continuum and the materials necessary. So it very much says the co God is described as a co-worker. Mm -hmm. I you, I've actually heard usually more liberal theology. I must stress this, or a mm -hmm. co-worker, uh, and this actually spins off into some moral issues, which I won't go into. Um, mm -hmm. uh, it's a different subject, but it is politically charged and motivated by a desire to, in a sense, reinvent Christian morality and Christian theology for the contemporary world. And uh, that's a different subject. But uh, I just wanted to. But I, I noticed that is it true to say that this occasionalist understanding is rooted in the Asherite tradition, but, right, but not so much accepted, shall we say, <laughs> understatement, um, in the more Athari uh, tradition associated with thinkers like Ibn Taymiyyah, mm -hmm. uh, for example, where he mm -hmm. would, if I understand him rightly or wrongly, allow mm -hmm. there to be in some sense, that yes, God is the primary cause and creator of mm -hmm. all things, of mm -hmm. course, mm -hmm. but he does allow in some sense secondary mechanisms uh, mm -hmm. in, say, the create in the physical order to... Mm -hmm. Uh, be working through and so it's not as absolutist that god is literally the sole exclusive creator of everything every moment that he mm -hmm. allows secondary causality in some particularly defined sense this is even to me in more non-ashery non-occasionalist tradition would that be mm -hmm. yeah um i mean maybe just in a nutshell um what we might like um state in the beginning, Ibn Taymiyyah is actually one strand within the Athari creed. So he himself is not necessarily um, adhering to all what has been said before him, like on behalf of the Atharis. Um I'm not 100% like familiar with all of his positions, but I do know that there is a kind of discussion on his uh, um, understanding of causality, on his epistemology. And um, I tend to remember that John Hoover said that he has a kind of, like, let's say, um, like a semi-occasionalist um, understanding. So he's definitely familiar with this theory, um, but how it manifests itself and whether it's 100% like on the same page uh, as the Asharite understanding of causality, that would be a question I would be not able to answer right now. We'll get diverged into that. That's not the subject anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. Um, but uh, it's actually important that you have mentioned this because this threefold distinction we have um, depicted, namely occasionalism, concurrentism, and conservationism, is in accordance with European philosophy. Mm. But quite similar discussions are taking place in the Muslim world. After all, um, secondary causation is in the center of the discussion. And we have, for example, in the Muslim world, theories that are, um, for example, uh, the theory of the Mu'tazilis is called Tawallud or Tawlid, or the peripatetic uh, philosophers do have um, their 
necessitarian understanding of um, secondary causes. So it's called in Arabic, it's called tabar. But um, in the center of all these discussions, we have the same question, namely, how is secondary causation to be understood and how is how it is to be squared with divine causation? Exactly. And um, which also shows us that, uh, like, uh, um, if we just leave the labels for a moment aside, this is actually a very overarching question. It is a long discussion that has that is going on for centuries and centuries. Mm-hmm. And um, in order to understand that, I would say let's just start with our historic journey, mm-hmm. um, namely the intellectual history of occasionalism. Um, because uh, um, I think... It's important to note that it often has been claimed that the history of philosophy in the West would have been completely different without the influences of Islamic and Jewish thought uh, from the Orient. Uh, But this has been rarely taken seriously. Uh, And you yourself have recently done a video on King Charles, right? In which you quote him uh, on Europe's, let's say, ignorance of its debts to Islamic civilization. Indeed. And um, he's generally right. Uh, um, European philosophy, for example, um, prefers to see itself only in the light of Greek thought and has a hard time admitting to Islamic influences. And this occasionalist um, theory is an interesting exception because it is just too obvious that it came from the Muslim world so everybody knew from the beginning this is a kind of Muslim theory that's going on that's uh, that we are dealing with, and uh, um, maybe just to highlight the main stations until we arrive at the discussion between uh, uh, um, Kant and Mustafa Sabri Effendi, uh, um, the theory itself has been systematized by none other than the founder of the Ashariite school, which was which was Hassan al Ashari himself. Uh, so he died in 10th century uh, Baghdad, and it had a lot of ramifications for um, for the Muslim world and for the Latin world. And um, it might be important to note that in this very point, um, there is no difference between the Esharis and the Maturidis, which are like next to the Esari school, but in terms of its of their quantity, actually the main theological schools in the Sunni Muslim world, which means which means that the like that um, in terms of causality, the Sunni world has like has always been quite occasionalist mm-hmm. because it is the most dominant theory since the 10th century after it has been systematized. Mm. Uh, I, I just, just to just yeah. to reiterate, uh, the because this is not just an intellectual theory. That I think it strikes me that there is a spiritual impulse behind this. Occasionalism. I mean, I'm far from being an expert like yourself, but it strikes me that behind this is the spiritual need to to proclaim and honor the sovereignty and the power of God. There is almost mm-hmm. a desire to honor mm-hmm. God, uh, mm-hmm. and rightly in our philosophical discourse. Um, not another object in the universe, but as mm-hmm. the, the, you know, Allah, Allah Akbar, he, he is greater than, God mm-hmm. is greater than anything. And it's mm-hmm. an attempt to express this philosophically and understand that in the details of causality that I, 
I get the sense is the kind of spiritual origins or intellectual origins of this. And this is a, the, mm -hmm. one of the great themes, as, as you say, of the Quran itself. So mm -hmm. it, there's a direct relationship between a revelation, spirituality, and the intellectual outworkings of that in philosophical mm -hmm. analysis, I think. And uh, uh, that, I think, is a fantastic characterization of, of Islamic thought, that it is so interconnected in this synthesis mm -hmm. of uh, spirituality, revelation, and, and intellectual inquiry. Whereas in the West, it's become bifurcated, and you end up having these splits. Mm -hmm. And philosophy now is almost entirely or, or, or entirely secular. And, mm -hmm. and the G word, as I call it, you know, God, it, it is, is relegated to this special thing called the philosophy of science over there in that corner. But mainstream analytical philosophy in the German American, sorry, in the Anglo-American sense, or even continental philosophy in Germany, in France, and Italy, is also irreligious. And um, anyway, that's a different subject. But it, it, it was this kind of profound, uh, almost doxological impulse behind the need to proclaim the sovereignty and majesty and greatness of God and how mm -hmm. we on the omnipotence of God or the omnipresence of God and how that's understood intellectually that is the great motivating power behind this discussion in mm -hmm. a way you don't perhaps see any more in, in Western secular philosophy. Mm -hmm. Just a passing observation anyway. Yes, which is a very um, precious one. But um, maybe two quick remarks on this, uh, which are important to understand also like the attitude of the different philosophers and theologians and, and for example in this very uh, um, discussion um, mixing or like conflating maybe for moral philosophy and um, theoretical philosophy is a is a kind of act or step done for example by Kant where we know that his moral philosophy was a motivating factor which um, basically caused him to think in certain in certain ways, which is something we uh, will unpack in the next discussion. But um, philosophers in the pre-modern era, era were actually quite, um, were actually quite, let's say, honest in their inquiry, meaning that they had a um, search for in a, in an uncompromised manner for truth, mm. and they were happy to concede its implications and its results. So that means, and that's the second short point, uh, uh, um, that especially these kind of bigger questions are quite often dealt first because these are the systematic paradigmatic questions you have to answer first and then you start to understand and interpret religious scripture in light of these questions right. because religious scripture itself is not necessarily systematized in such a way that you can have an answer for everything and um, interpretation itself is actually nothing else than um, the result of having general assumptions of having general convictions in these kind of questions in terms of epistemology and ontology, for example, in which you, um, by which you are guided. And um, therefore, it is quite often the other way around, that people have general assumptions and start to understand scripture in the light of this, mm. in light, light of this. Uh, um, but that's actually nothing restricted to one camp, but more a general theme in, in uh, Muslim intellectual thought, I would say. Mm, okay.
But just to come back to our uh, um, historic journey, as we called it, uh, um, like occasionalism became very dominant with the dominance of the Ashaira and the, with, with the Maturidis. And therefore, it became also subject to a lot of discussions with the other groups I have mentioned, like the Mortizilis and like the Falasifa. And this was also the case in, Andalus in Andalusia, uh, in yeah. Andalusia. As King Charles said, right, um, um, for Europe, Andalusia was basically the gateway to Islamic civilization, the gateway to Islamic sciences, and to Islamic philosophy. And this will also uh, play, play a role in, in Maimonides and uh, in, in occasionalism, because Maimonides, um, the most influential theologian and philosopher in Jewish history, uh, was also from El Andalus. He was. Uh, uh, he engaged with occasionalism very critically mm. in his uh, famous work, uh, Dalalat al Ha'irin, which is mm. translated as The yeah. Guide of the Perplexed in English, I think. Behind me on the bookshelf, yep. <laughs> All right, mm. sounds good. And this work will play a major role because in, mm. this work in turn was like translated in the 13th century into Latin. Mm. One century later, the same applied with Ibn Rushd's works. Ibn Rushd himself is from Al-Andalus. He is very critical uh, towards occasionalism, and his mm. works are also translated. So, and we see thus like that a Jewish philosopher and a Muslim philosopher in this in this uh, case are criticizing uh, Muslim theory, so to say. But through their works. Ironic enough, uh, Latin Europe made mostly its acquaintance with occasionalism in the first place. Indeed. So the critics introduced occasionalism to Europe, so to say. And still it caused a lot of debates. Uh, so much so that Thomas Aquinas was prompted to respond to occasionalism as the most like authoritative theologian in Catholic history. And this translation movement marks first transition in the history of occasionalism, namely from the Arabic Islamic context to the Latin context. And occasionalism starts to become a topic in Europe. And I just, sorry, just for, for this book I recommend highly actually, it's called Classical Islamic Theology, uh, published mm -hmm. by Cambridge University Press, uh, the Cambridge companion to that, edited by uh, Tim Winter, who's a, a professor at Cambridge, he happens to be a Muslim uh, uh, revert. I mention this because it's an excellent book and actually pretty unique in the English language. Uh, if you want the historical intellectual history of the Islamic tradition, which you, mm -hmm. you are, me are now talking about, and the major themes of that tradition, uh, God and his essences, creation, ethics, revelation, causality, uh, and, and also uh, other uh, epistemology, even eschatology. This is uh, the, probably the best book of its kind in English, uh, and I'm halfway through it, and it's uh, and so uh, all of the themes you have mentioned so far are discussed. This is an anthology of essays by uh, the West's most preeminent uh, academic specialists in this area, but it is written for the general audience, by someone like me. So yeah. uh, we can all access it. Um, but I just thought I'd plug this book. I don't get any benefit from plugging these books, by the way. Maybe I should. But I mention it because I think it, uh, for, if you want to read more, then I would recommend that book. Doubtless, Emir, you can recommend others. Mm -hmm. Thank you. All right. Um, yeah, um, these kind of handbooks and companions are actually quite helpful to get a first understanding um, of the topics.
but they also obviously do aim that and nothing more like um as soon as things become a little bit more detailed and um a little bit more sophisticated um you definitely have to like go back either to original sources or phd theses and whatnot um but um in order to not lose the threat uh not to lose the threat um the theory itself, which basically starts to become like a topic in Europe, also finds its advocates. And one influential theologian, for example, who is associated with occasionalism is the German theologian uh, Gabriel Biel. He himself is maybe not that known, but he had a great influence on Luther and Melanchthon, so on later, on later uh, figures who wow. played a significant role in Christian history. Especially Martin Luther, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, 100%. Mm -hmm. And um, it's like quite interesting that the, the proponents basically read the criticism of occasionalism and they become convinced of the theory itself. <laughs> that wasn't Which, quite the point, was it? It was supposed to be criticized. That, oh, hang on, this sounds like a really good idea. Maybe we'll this, follow the criticized theory rather than the one that we're supposed to. This is how things go, but I think it shows, yeah. Yeah. it shows us one important thing, namely that the potential and the consequence of a philosophy or theory is not only demonstrated by its propon uh, proponents and advocates, but sometimes even by its critics. Mm -hmm. And um, there's even a second ground where more or less the same where more or less the same happens, namely occasionalism is subject to discussions, it will be critiqued. And by the critics, it will be popularized again. Mm -hmm. Namely, um, one century later, the late Spanish um, scholastics like Luis de Molina and um, Francesco Suarez, who will who play a like huge role, like a significant role in their in their own right, uh, um, they will criticize occasionalism because they are concurrentists, and um, yet they are a very important bridge uh, mm -hmm. insofar as one century later, um, the French philosopher Nicolas Malbranche, who is well acquainted with their writings, gets introduced to occasionalism against by, again by its critics. Wow. wow. And he will become, uh, even more than Berkeley, who is also an occasionalist to a certain degree, the most famous and the most influential occasionalist in European history. Uh, Nicolas Mailbranch. Mm. And uh, so much so. I can I just clarify one point? Well, you mentioned these names at this late stage. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, they're, they're familiar with occasionalism from its critics, but is the Islamic uh, origins or character of this still being understood, or has this now become so detached from its historical context that it's now a free floating uh, idea? Or is, it, or is it still understood to be Islamic in origin? So I'm trying to that's, that's a very good question. I mean, um, theories do have a kind of, let's say, natural environment, as occasionalism has. It yeah. was produced within the Muslim environment, within the Muslim world. But it is apt to be adopted by other theologians as well, as Nicolas Melbranche did. Mm -hmm. He still, he was still uh, like a, a Christian theologian, mm -hmm. but uh, that that was because he as a Christian theologian was dealing with the same questions and mm. found that answer to be the most convincing one. He just right. adopted that answer because Christians are in this 
in this regard at least, uh, have no differences from Muslims whatsoever, meaning they believe in an omnipresent and omnipotent God. Yeah. And um, uh, um, interestingly, there will be like literally certain like reading circles throughout Europe of of his writings and uh, he will become very influential so much so that like um, figures like Leibniz and Hume and Kant will feel the need to deal with him without actually knowing that they are dealing with an Islamic product at the same time. Right. So the, the, the key the key concept occasionalism is there, but it's been detached, separated from an Islamic context. It becomes almost adopted into the, the Christian discourse in Europe. So, mm-hmm. uh, right. OK, because it is an universal theory for uh, and an explanation for causality, what causality right. means. Okay. While we have to keep in mind that Mel Branch is fair enough to mention that he has taken, adopted this theory from Muslims. So he is quite aware from where the theory itself comes. Oh, he's aware of it. So therefore his his readers, the reading circles of Europe, as you put it, would also be aware of that through his own statement to that effect. Yeah, that might be the case. Um, Even if it doesn't matter for them, like because it's just a theory that has to be understood or and either you are convinced or you have to uh, critique it from from the perspective of Hume, for example. But like it's important because when when at the end of this chain, Sabri Effendi refutes Hume and Kant as an occasionalist, mm-hmm. he in fact contributes to a long dialogue with many stations all over the world. And that's exactly the point. point. It started like in Baghdad uh, with Imam al-Ashari and um, went over to like moved over to Andalusia and then to Rome and Germany and France and Scotland, and then comes back to Mustafa Sabri Effendi, who was in Egypt in that time. And that shows basically like the mobility of human thought that does not care about like cultural and even theological boundaries. It's mm. just the search for truth, not a kind of cult- a cultural phenomenon also. It reminds me an- analogously of actually the scientific uh, enterprise, a scientific endeavor where, where mm-hmm. people, cultures can, uh, in, in a common endeavor, seek to understand the universe, the laws of physics or biological mechanisms and so on. Mm-hmm. These mm-hmm. discoveries, discussions are portable, that they're not culturally rooted in a particular thing. So you can obviously have a, a Hindu scientist, an atheist scientist, a Muslim scientist, a Christian scientist. In that sense, mm-hmm. uh, there's an analogous human endeavor going on. 100%. And um, this adaption of occasionalism by the Cartesians like Mel Branch marks the second big cultural transition in the history of occasionalism. So it was transited from the Arabic culture or world to the Latin world. And mm. now it becomes part like a product of the French context mm. uh, after being uh, a product of the Latin world. And this clearly shows us actually that occasionalism as a theory, and this uh, is actually closely tied to the question you have asked, occasionalism as a theory um, is not dependent on a certain cosmology because um, it's, let's say, natural environment was the atomistic worldview, which is the basic paradigm of the Ashaira and the Maturidis. Um, But the atomistic worldview itself is not a requirement of for occasionalism 
because all the three contacts do operate in different physical models. Yes. We have like uh, the Aristotelian hylomorphistic understanding throughout the Middle Ages in Europe. Then we have the Cartesians who supersede that. And before that, we have even the atomistic worldview. So they have different uh, physical models, but they have three common theses. And uh, these theses should be kept in mind in order to understand what the like commonality of these different manifestations of occasionalism are. Um, the first one is a kind is a metaphysical one, namely the one we have already mentioned, that there is no causal efficacy in nature. Mm. That is a metaphysical claim. It is a, yes, yeah. It's nothing, nothing to do with science because the science, the scientists can still observe causality, I mm. or and after cause and effect in a yeah. way. But this is a more fundamental philosophical, metaphysical claim that everything, all these apparent external outward forms, mm -hmm. actually behind the scenes. If I can use this spatial language, behind the scenes, we see the action of the the, the absolute God Himself, who is in control and sovereign over literally everything that happens in the universe and that's behind that's what's really going on if i'm mm -hmm. paraphrasing it here in a kind of dramatic way but the reality is you, the scientist observes the surface behind mm -hmm. the curtain the reality is that would that be a, a colorful <laughs> the, the scientists you mean the metaphysicians the, yeah because we, we got to because well both we got to uh, the scientists are still doing science they're still looking mm -hmm. they're still doing experiments observing the laws of physics but mm -hmm. would the occasionalists therefore say yes that happens and that is eff efficacious it's not an illusion mm -hmm. but the reality is behind the appearance mm -hmm. of uh, causality is the divine control the divine sovereignty would that be yes. a way of I, i'm trying i'm trying to i'm trying to in integrate linguistically or conceptually mm -hmm. what mm -hmm. scientists do with occasionalism without mm -hmm. denying occasionalism i'm trying to give a, a, syn a synthesis is that possible? yeah that's possible and it's easily possible. It's actually one of the discussion topics between Hume, Kant and Mustafa Sabrefand, namely the possibility of science in general. Exactly. So it, will be in, like, it will be discussed in a detailed manner in the second talk. But uh, to them. Okay. so the three common theses, the last one is actually closely tied to your question. So I will come back to it in, a, in just one minute. Okay. So we have said the metaphysical um, claim uh, that there's no... Um, that there is no causal efficacy in nature. Closely tied to this, there is obviously um, the question, uh, the theological conviction, namely that God is all powerful, hmm. which is like a commonality of all occasionalist uh, understandings. And the third one, this is exactly what basically enables occasionalists to. Um, to have scientific inquiry in the first place, mm -hmm. namely an epistemological claim that God creates according to his habits. He has habits in his creation. Right. And um, this habit causes a kind of regularity, and science is nothing else but discovering the different regularities that are created right. by God. Right. So it's, 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 it's in the Quran using expression, the sunnah of Allah, the, the sunnah. <laughs> Yes, that's that's exactly how occasionalists will understand that. 
Right. Yeah, I was just trying to read it in the chronic understanding there. Right. Okay. It's actually even called like this also even in the manuals of like uh, classical Arabic texts, you will even find Adatullah or Sunnatullah as, as an expression, which, right. is, which is in some ways almost identical with Hume's understanding of habits. Yes. Con yes. A, a, like a, a kind of um, a topic which we will unpack um uh, in, in the future, like uh, um, in the second in the second talk, but the an important like aspect or an important like uh, there's a there's a there's a room that is being created by this very understanding, by this very epistemological uh, um, thesis, namely that we are talking about God's ha God habit God's habits, which means that these habits can be broken as well. So yeah. they are necessary, right? So there's yes. there's freedom, so to speak, uh, for the miraculous, for supernatural interventions, for the virgin mm -hmm. birth of Jesus, and the parting of the ways by Moses, and the, mm -hmm. and so on. That, that these are because, as you say, we're not dealing with iron necessity in mm -hmm. the kind of the kind of mechanistic universe that Kant inhabited. This Enlightenment universe uh, from a Newton, uh, mm -hmm. where there is no freedom. It's deterministic. Right. It's it's necessary. Necessitarian. So, where is free will in your in your model? Or sorry, not your model. In the model you're discussing, uh, mm -hmm. of course, the Sunnah, the Sunnah of Allah, if I can use that term, uh, it is not necessitarian. It's 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 what God does, and He is free, being sovereign, of course, to do mm -hmm. as He pleases. He's not restricted or restrained by any external agency. Mm -hmm. Precisely, and therefore, like just the term necessity, the whole like in the whole equation of causality, always plays a huge, huge role. And uh, all the thinkers try to understand what is necessity in this very framework. What does it mean? Mm -hmm. And um, here I actually have to mention something which will again play a, like a significant role in our second talk, namely the major a major reason why occasionalism actually made its way into 17th century France and started mm -hmm. to play a significant role again in European philosophy is as as we mentioned previously, like the Cartesian dualist paradigm that mm. superseded Aristotelian uh, hylomorphism, because Cartesian philosophers like Malebranche do have a problem to solve, namely the famous mind-body problem they have inherited from Descartes' philosophy. The question, just very roughly speaking, is um, how can be there any interaction between mind and body, the both like the two, let's say, uh, main components or like building blocks of existence, so to say, mind and body, how can be there any interaction between them if, if both essences are categorically different from each other? Mm -hmm. So like and this is like the the um, basically the claim of Descartes. The, this is Descartes' assumption. So you can't you only can be in Cartesian if you believe in these assumptions. And the Cartesian answer to this is it is God who only uses different natural instances as occasions to create certain effects. Mm -hmm. So the feeling uh, like the let's say different kind of feelings like hunger or pain and so on and the physical and the physical realm 
do interact because God wants to create the feeling of hunger or the feeling of satiety uh, with food or without having food like this. And um, this is exactly um, the reason why uh, um, Leibniz and Kant do understand occasionalism, not as a full theory of causality, but rather as an ad hoc solution for the mind and body problem, for the mind-body problem. Because they have they were introduced to this idea in this very context. And therefore Kant thought, for example, which will play a role obviously in the whole discussion, that occasionalism is next to, for example, Leibniz's pre-established harmony, primarily an explanation for the mind-body problem. And he criticized it from that very angle. And therefore his criticism is a little bit weird and it will, it's a challenge to basically pin down what his problems with occasionalism was in the first place because mm -hmm. he has got introduced to this idea in a very specific context. Mm -hmm. While Mel Branch himself is actually quite explicit in breaking away from previous Cartesians. It means he introduces occasionalism, he's very explicit in this, as the only way how all causal relations can be explained, meaning the causal relation between two bodies, uh, two minds, and a mind of and a body. So there is no, it's not a specific solution. It is a like full-fledged theory in his, in his whole uh, philosophy. And um, therefore, he doesn't find a specific solution to a specific problem. Melbourne's main motivation is actually the same motivation the Ashaira and the Maturidis have. Namely, he sees an unsolvable problem between divine and secondary causation. In other words, like if an all-powerful God exists, it is a philosophically untenable position to hold that there are spheres outside of God's power to which mm. basic secondary causation amounts according to Mel Branch and according to the Asharis, by the way. Mm. So they have like a like huge commonality in this in this point. And um, because his philosophy turns out to be very influential in his time and uh, after him, actually, there will be a famous philosopher who will start to ground his arguments on the same basis of Melbourne's occasionalism against laws of nature, for example. We are talking about David Hume because his famous induction problem Hume's famous induction problem um, is like a kind of adoption of the argument that is called in literature, at least the no necessary connection argument. And he has adopted that by fr from Mel Branch and other Cartesians. And as we said, because Mel Branch himself said that this is like this stuff, this theory, comes from the Muslim world, we basically start to complete the circle. Right. Namely, that we now understand why Hume's induction problem reads exactly like Al-Ghazali's 17th chapter of the Tahafut. Because Hume got it from male branch and male branch got right. it from Ghazali right. and Co. Right. 
And um, can I just ask, so it's one question that's nagging me, and I've kind of read the answer before, but I always found it very opaque. Uh, in the Asherite occasion, the Asherite occasionalist understanding mm -hmm. uh, of causality, what room, if any, is there for free will? If, oh. if, uh, but I know, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I, I mean, it's such an obvious elephant in the room, isn't it? Because if everything oh. is caused by God, I have no problem if the rain is caused by God. I have no problem if, you know, mm -hmm. if the cosmos and so on. But the whole point of moral discourse is mm -hmm. that you have a choice. You have alternative courses of action and mm -hmm. a choice presupposes free will. It, it seems to be an implication of, of, of Asherite occasionalism that moral morality doesn't exist. I, I know it does exist. So uh, how, how do you get from one to the other without retaining, whilst retaining both, I guess? Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. I, I mean, we don't have to go into this now. This is going to be completely divert the subject. But yes. it's an obvious point that I just want to state it, even if we don't cover it, because mm -hmm. uh, there has to be an answer to this. Otherwise, it looks as if everything is determined by God. There's no free will. Therefore, we can't be judged by our actions by mm -hmm. a just God, because we're automatons, we're mm -hmm. robots, and the whole thing just collapses. Exactly. The question of causality in this regard is like closely tied uh, to the question of the free will and uh, to the question of free will. And um, that's actually also uh, subject to discussion in all in the broader framework. And actually, even Mustafa Sabri Afandi, who has, uh, in this case, a deterministic, uh, um, like all other Ashaira, as you said, inclinations, to have has like written a separate work on this, which is called Mawqiful Bashar Taht Sultani Qadr. But without delving too much into this question, the problem of free will is not a problem that you could escape without a due while you adopt, for example, a concurrentist or conservationist understanding. So the problem itself still stays. And um, it is also true that I would say the bulk of uh, Islamic intellectual thought and I'm thinking of, for example, philosophical Sufism, of the Ashaira, and of the Falasifa, three major traditions, um, do have more deterministic understandings. And um, they, like, I will just say that this is maybe enough for this, like, at this stage. Okay. Um, what we might keep in mind in this uh, in this whole discussion is that the let's say everyday understanding of free will mm -hmm. can be a little bit misleading and as soon as you like unpack that understanding you actually start to understand that this is actually not a like very substantial position to begin with and therefore the question of free will is a question that has to be like let's say discussed in a more philosophical nuanced way rather than an emotional approach saying uh what does it mean that i don't have a free will because all the, all the ashairas as well for the ashairas as well for example do 
make a distinction between, um, let's say, forced human actions, like every kind of reflex and things where a kind of thought pro process is before that. And in this case, as soon as we basically start to differentiate between the different acts of human of human beings, um, we do get a more sophisticated uh, picture. Uh, but I will I will leave it with this. Okay, um, that's right. We can move on. Just just um, to basically um, um, concentrate on at least this part of the conversation, because yeah. as soon as we uh, do diverge to all related questions. Uh, I, was aware, I was aware of it as a huge diversion, but I just wanted to flag it up as obvious, as we say, elephant in the room, because, you know, everyone would be saying, what about this? What about this? And I'm saying, yep, I know. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> an another moment for that, of course. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, the, this kind of, like, circle we have grow um, is also important for our discussion the particular discussion between Savri and Hume on the one side and Hume and Kant on the other, because this is also the reason to give a kind of spoiler why Savri has sympathies for Hume as opposed to Kant. Mm -hmm. yep. Because why, without knowing this, Hume and Savri ultimately draw on the same intellectual tradition while combating laws of nature, namely the Ashari tradition in this regard. Mm. And if we add to this equation the well-known fact that Kant, in his critique of pure reason, mm -hmm. primarily seeks to overcome Hume's skepticism on the question of causality, yeah. uh, then we complete the circle. Because first we said Hume, in his uh, um, questioning of causation, is massively influenced by Mel Branch. That's the first point. Then Mel Branch, in turn, draws on the Islamic heritage via Latin sources. He doesn't know Arabic, but that's not important. And then we said Kant, in his critique of pure reason, regarding causality at least, he, that's this work, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I love, I love this portrait, it's, it's portrait of Kant, it's focusing on his brain. It's not like his face, <laughs> it matters, it's his head. Because right. that's, that's the significant thing of that portrait. <laughs> and yeah, anyway, like, he, in this very work, um, like this very work, at least, let's say, is understood to be an attempt to overcome Hume's radical skepticism. Yep. And at the end of this chain, we have Mustafa Sabri Effendi, who engages with Kant more than with any other Western philosopher and mm. who will end up mostly siding with Hume regarding the induction problem while discarding Kant's understanding of causality means that we have four names here, like Mel Branch is for occasionalism and Hume who is influenced by occasionalism, Kant is radically against occasionalism yeah. and Mustafa Sabri at the end of the day is for occasionalism and basically um, comes back to, in many ways at least, to Mel Branch's uh, point. So there's a back and forth going on between Baghdad, uh, uh, France, Scotland, Germany, and Egypt, more or less. Yes. Uh, kind of football analogy there, like football teams. No, there is. <laughs> um, indeed. But, uh, like, just to add this, um, this, this point, 
coming from a rationalist tradition, Sabri will also have his differences with Hume. So he will criticize him on multiple aspects. And this is exactly the reason why he says at the end of his discussion, which we will unpack, as we said, um, that the truth lies in between between Kant and Hume. Like that, he says, he says something like, Al-Haq fit tawassud bainahuma also. And uh, um, as an aside, um, because it has, I think, an important takeaway. Um, the, a very interesting question in in this whole um, in this whole discussion is the question of the differences between the different occasionalist understandings between Mel Branch and the Cartesians, for example, on the one side, and the Esharis on the other side. Mm. Um, and the next maybe five minutes might be a little bit difficult, but bear with me uh, yeah. uh, um, because it has definitely a nice takeaway and will show like the added value of Mustafa Sabri's approach. Um, Sabri himself, also being very fond of Descartes, draws a line regarding Descartes' theological voluntarism, as it's called, N meaning uh, um, Descartes has a kind of understanding of God's power, which is untenable from Sabri's perspective. He says, as it is well known that um, the laws of thought, like the law of contradiction, is created. Um, but um, nevertheless, Sabri is not too harsh with Descartes out of strategic reasons. He finds in him a kind of rational ally <laughs> with with and he uses him against his like Muslim interlocutors and against the empiricists. And uh, um, it's actually very interesting because there's, to be honest, nothing reconcilable left between Descartes and Sabri uh, regarding the laws of thought. Because as soon as you say that the laws of thought are created, as Descartes like openly says, um, you also say, and that's actually his point, that they can be changed. So what we understand as impossible, for example, contradiction, that is impossible to have a triangle with four angles and so on and so forth, right? Uh, uh, um, this is something that might be impossible for us, but it might be possible for God under, under certain circumstances is, is his point. And the Esharis will never say something like that because had they been created, the laws of thought, they would have been contingent. And because the laws of thought basically imply the three modalities, namely the modality of necessity, of possibility or contingency, and impossibility, saying that they are created would amount to say that they are subsumed under a bigger category, which is again contingency, and that necessity is a subcategory of contingency is obviously something absurd for the Ashari, for the Ashaira. And rather than this, the Ashaira would say something like that the laws of thought, the laws of, uh, the, let's stick to the principle of non-contradiction. Um, these uh, laws are implications and aspects of reality. And Mustafa Sabri Afendi has actually a very, let's say, uh, um, interesting um, passage in this very context when he 
basically draws the line uh, against Descartes. He says, what we call logically impossible, okay, is impossible for God and is impossible for, for human beings because it is impossible in reality. Also is the Arabic term means it is not impossible impossible because there's like we are talking about a kind of um, entity that is not powerful enough to bring something like that into existence. It's just an absurd idea that can't exist. It's intrinsically impossible. But but you, you said the example of a, of a square circle or a triangle with four sides mm -hmm. might be possible in some conceivable universe that we don't understand. Um, and that seems to be a very different view that, that this that seemingly impossible things are actually possible in some possible world that we can't conceive of. And that kind of leads to the breakdown of any rationality because mm -hmm. the impossible category can no longer really be absolute. It's just, it's like Kant's view, you know, it, it's, it, things may appear in such a way to us, Mm -hmm. uh, but that's that's our, our our human cognitive faculties seeing it that way in themselves, mm -hmm. which is uh, inaccessible in yeah. the world. Things mm -hmm. in themselves are not mm -hmm. accessible, um, mm -hmm. and so we can't speak of them. <laughs> Precisely. Um, um, so yeah, okay. But that's actually actually just to pick up your last thought. One mm -hmm. of the main criticisms. Mustafa Sabri Effendi launches against Kant, like when he's right. when Kant makes this difference between appearances and things of themselves, which is called transcendental idealism. And we will come back to that idea for sure. Mm -hmm. But um, this kind of, let's say, tangent, this digression is to demonstrate that the Esharis do have their commonalities and differences with both philosophical traditions of Europe, the rationalists and the empiricists. Mm -hmm. And so far as, uh, if we just remember that the no necessary connection argument is an empirical argument, we find that the Ashaira are actually in some ways quite empiricist, like, em like have an empirical or empiricist inclination as well. And Sabri's big achievement lies in demonstrating these similarities and differences by bringing all the traditions into conversation with each other. Mm -hmm. And thus he shows that the discussion in the East and the West is actually not that far from each other. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is what uh, um, makes the work, work so insightful in my eyes, because Sabri basically says something like, we have something in common with Descartes, and also with Mel Branch and Kant and Hume and Locke and so and so on and so forth. But we have also our differences and we have our own way. And this is way is in no aspect less sophisticated. And that's the reason why he starts to engage with them critically, showing their inconsistencies from his perspective. Mm -hmm. And that's my biggest takeaway from Mel it situates the Ashaira, the the Ashari paradigm in the grand scheme of things. Mm. Obviously, requires a like very, like rooted understanding of both traditions, which is here at stake. And and this this goes back to uh, you know that video uh, that I did about uh, King Charles the uh, Third, who uh, emphasized uh, and refreshed our memory, shall we say, in the West 
of our indebtedness uh, as a Western mm. uh, civilization to mm. the Islamic uh, uh, understanding. And of course, Andalusia, Islamic Spain, was in Europe. And there's something that Charles repeatedly stressed. It wasn't you mm -hmm. know, another part of the world. It's actually physically part of U European terrain and was mm. for about seven, eight hundred years. Um, yeah. Uh, and it was huge, and that was the the the, the centre of civilizational gravity uh, mm -hmm. in Europe for centuries, and mm -hmm. had its uh, influence uh, inevitably uh, through the mm -hmm. translation movement, and as you mentioned, the Latin West picking up these ideas and and running with them to critique them, and then actually many people found the critiques less persuasive than the actual idea that was supposed to reject, and then ran with that. Um, but it's the cross fertilization that Charles was mentioning, mm -hmm. that you're reiterating, and. Uh, yeah. Uh, and but mentioning th this this guy uh, uh, Sabri Effendi, uh, the last Sheikh of Islam of the Ottoman Empire. I mean, he was like the the chief like judge. He was the the last great intellectual figure of the Ottoman Empire. Obviously, before it was, and he was a great critic of Mustafa Mustafa Kemal, of course. And he had to go into exile, uh, um, Effendi. Mm -hmm. I mean, because mm -hmm. he was basically a dissident, a political dissident, and was exiled in other countries because he opposed the the new regime the republic there which in many ways was very anti-muslim of course and um i mean was his work most of his work was done in exile i assume then was it what when he had yes left, yeah. that's actually i will reserve these questions to the second part of our talk where yeah. i would love to basically show like how this work actually came into being and what ah. his political career was so okay. something we will elaborate on quickly at the end of this discussion. Okay. But um, then there's just one final thing there, a, a kind of a, a, an iconic uh, example then of this, which, which is uh, in Kant's own uh, doctoral thesis, uh, he had a PhD, at least one, mm -hmm. um, in, his, uh, in the certificate on the front cover, um, mm -hmm. we can see, I'll put it up on the screen now, um, um, is that the Bismillah, that this is the famous Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, the name of God, mm -hmm. the most merciful, the most compassionate. Mm -hmm. and this actually in Arabic is there on the cover of Kant's own dissertation. So you get this mm -hmm. extraordinary juxtaposition of uh, Kant himself and the Islamic uh, Declaration of Faith. Why, why did Kant, do you think, did he put the Bismillah on his doctoral dissertation, do you think? Mm-hmm. That's like kind of mystery uh, people have in mind. Um, there are, there's one article out there written by a German orientalist uh, by the name of Hartmut Bobzin. Uh, Bobzin um, traces like this, let's say, paperback and puts it into a kind of tradition where we see that a lot of PhD thesis or dissertations in that time do have this kind of typology on the top of their of their paper. This, but this actually this kind of uh, let's say uh, like fact is even more ironic when we when we have like against the backdrop of Kant's let's say uh, very intolerant uh, mm -hmm. attitude towards other cultures. Because he doesn't seem to be aware that he's actually at least um, like indirectly influenced, at least by some Muslim typologies, while he says that Orientals or other people are not even 
like able to think. So it's yeah. It's, this is your allusion to the fact that he did write books on race, uh, yeah, but, yeah. Uh, and he, he certainly by today's standards would be considered uh, mm -hmm. a racial uh, racist, I suppose. Uh, mm -hmm. Uh, and he certainly had an, an understanding of kind of alleged hierarchy of races, uh, as he would see it, mm -hmm. uh, which is one of the uh, unfortunate side effects of, of his, uh, I, I suspect, of his own great isolation, physical isolation in Conisberg, where he, he never left this place. So he wasn't exactly well-traveled, was he? I mean, um, but he, even so, he, he if he was more widely read than he perhaps was, he would have understood differently. Mm -hmm. But um, no, this is uh, something, this is very true, what you're saying. Yeah, but it's actually an important point because, like, it goes without saying that none of the thinkers mentioned were saying something like, yay, let's have a civilizational dialogue across the borders in order to demonstrate how <laughs> philosophical traditions can be and let's basically glorify uh, the unity of humanity and so on and so forth. <laughs> Good point. Uh, Good point. Fair play. Fair play. And mm -hmm. as we said, like the last person who might be interested in something like that is Kant himself, who is known for discussing racism. And um, like there's actually the accusation in the air against him that while trying to find out what the pure reason is capable of mm. knowing, mm. he was basically talking only about the mind of Europeans mm -hmm. because for Kant an African might be a human being but he is not a person mm -hmm. Kant and we have to say it as it is is the founder of scientific racism in academia mm -hmm. so when nowadays people in Germany uh, are making a lot of money by insulting Muslims and other groups as dumb people we mm -hmm. Fortunately, have to say this has this is part of a larger tradition, mm. and but yet we have to basically, to be fair, point out that it is at least not a monolithic tradition. In so far as like big figures, figures like Lessing, like Herder, like Goethe, like Ludwig Tieck, and so on and so forth, all of them were contemporaries of Kant. Means. Mm. There's no excuse for having such a, let's say, uh, uh, um, like fanatic understanding of the world, because mm -hmm. we have as witnesses other people who live in the same, in the, in the like in the same culture, who are yes. much open-minded. And you've not mentioned Goethe, of course, who's probably or possibly the, the greatest of all. Uh, oh, I beg your pardon. Sure. I, I thought you okay. hadn't. No, no, not like. Obviously, Goethe is, Goethe is like the most iconic figure in this. In this uh, was he a contemporary of Kant or was he, I can't remember yes. his exact date. Oh, sure. Right, sure. But, but, but in that case, to, to give that, that case, it was a good example. Uh, you know, he, he's, I mean, he's even been called a, a closet Muslim. I mean, he, his views mm -hmm. on, on the Prophet and Islam were incredibly insightful and appreciative um, mm -hmm. uh, to juxtapose that very explicitly with Kant. So just uh, emphasizing your point that he could have been mm -hmm. much more uh, informed and enlightened, as indeed his great contemporaries were. Mm -hmm. So it remains a little bit of a question mark why he was so mm -hmm. as he was. And in this regard, I think it's quite like telling or insightful that Kant is Kant himself ends up replicating an Oriental tradition 
and, and is and is even utterly unaware that he demonstrates by this okay. kind of Islamic influence uh, on European th thought, and yeah. like to to not to like exaggerate or 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 interpret that like if like the tradition itself might be a kind of typology or a kind of uh, tradition that has its last examples in, in that time since we are talking about the second half of the 18th century in which Europe starts to change the power dynamics drastically but it is still remarkable that it, that it has survived until Kant's time and he's not even aware of that and I would even say that the most substantial influence possible on a human being is a paradigmatic influence he is not even aware of this, this, as you used the word irony before, and it is ironic. One of the mm -hmm. terms that Kant, uh, if you, uh, if one reads the Critic of Pure Reason at the, mm -hmm. the very beginning, uh, and there are two versions of it, the A and the B, but in one of the versions, he refers to his own thought as a Copernican revolution. Mm -hmm. So uh, before we had the, the, the Ptolemaic cosmology, so mm -hmm. the Earth is the center of the, the universe, um, the sun and the moon, or it goes around there. In Copernicus, of course, that's not the case. We're no longer in a geocentric universe. But this is a, a, an analogy uh, a, uh, that he uses concerning his own philosophy, that he has inaugurated a revolution in our understanding of the relationship between the human mind and the, the world around us, the phenomenal world and the noumenal world and so on. And and all this is, and I think he did. I, I think it, you know the way the way he synthesized empiricism and rationalism was truly extraordinary. But mm -hmm. the irony is, as you say, he was completely unaware of the paradigm he was operating within in other areas: the the <laughs> Orientalist paradigm, um, uh, the racist paradigm, and so on. And so, his revolutionary his revolutionary insights into the human being were strictly limited. Um, mm -hmm. To epistemology uh, and to lesser extent metaphysics, obviously. That's, that's precisely the case. And I, but I would say, like, um, just maybe understanding Kant, in at least in in, in like within the ranks of Enlightenment figures, mm. uh, as an exception, we find also other more positively uh, and open-mindedly. Um, like inclined people and it is just a matter of fact that like european civilizations were under influence under 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 the islamic uh, in, like under the islamic world for centuries and i mean just just a word uh, i think not to digress too much but just the word orientation mm -hmm. is a very telling word if you are, if you were yeah. to ask me like that europe got its orientation from the Orient yes. uh, is like something that has been even ingrained in everyday language. Yeah. And even if it's today vice versa, which is totally fine. I mean, this is how cultures and how civilizations operate, right? Yes, yes. Um, as, and as long as this kind of exchange is a deliberate exchange, like the exchange of Goethe, or you have, for example, um, interviewed Diana Dark, right? Yes. And she and she has just uh, just shown like the exchange on the dimension or on the level of architecture. Absolutely. And this is exactly what has happened. And um, and, now, and now, of course, the as you say, it's reverse reverse Orientalism, whatever that may be, which is a better mm -hmm. term. 
uh, well, Occidentalism is, is the, the name of the game now. But you, you see often the worst excesses of Western architecture being imported into the Muslim world without naming names. You see some hideous uh, building. Uh, but it's not just in physical structures, but also ideologically with the, the latest, um, how can we put it, you know, fashions in behavior and ideologies being exported quite aggressively into, well, globally into the Muslim world. Um, so the whole power dynamic has changed and we now live in a very, um, uh, you know, there's a asymmetry of power from mm -hmm. the West to the Orient. It used to be the other way around, of course. And I wouldn't even call that a kind of cultural exchange. As soon as force and power is at stake, We are not talking about a civilizational dialogue or a civilizational exchange no. or whatever. No. We are talking about imperialism. Imperialism and hegemony. Uh, absolutely, yeah. We need a different different discourse uh, to describe that. You're absolutely correct. Mm -hmm. yeah. but I, I, will, I will say, I mean, I, I remain a fan of Kant, not for the, the bad reasons, but for the good reasons. Um, mm -hmm. And I do recommend uh, this book. Uh, it's a popular <laughs> little book. It's part mm -hmm. of the, uh, the very short introduction. It's really short series. Mm -hmm by Oxford University Press. They have literally hundreds of titles on everything you could possibly imagine in history and science and literature and politics, you name it. This one is on Kant by Roger Scruton, who was a British philosopher, sadly died a couple of years ago, uh, expert in Kant and many other things as well. Uh, Scruton is good because he's very readable. He's very humane. He certainly knows his stuff. And this is a highly regarded introduction to the general public to the philosophy and worldview including the subjects you know, racism and so on that you mentioned uh in a written in a very smooth and accessible way so um mm -hmm. if you're not familiar with kant you could do worse than reading this book by roger scruton published by oxford university press um mm -hmm. I, i call this the mount everest of philosophical works uh mm -hmm. for pure reason uh because it is the tallest most difficult mountain or philosophical work uh you know I, i've read works from plato up to i don't know wittgenstein pop or whatever this is by far the most difficult and challenging one not least because of insistence on using kind of this kind of scholastic obscure terminology to kind of architecture of thought that he has where he mm -hmm. inventing words and I mean, you've read it in the german and this is the standard now is the standard english version or translation published by cambridge university press Um, mm -hmm. it's, uh, this is the one I use as an undergraduate studying philosophy and it's translation ed uh, edited by Paul Geyer who's from University of Pennsylvania, American and Alan Wood from Yale University and mm -hmm. uh, you and I were discussing this the other day about, because you can read this in German being German, if I can call you German um, <laughs> or part German anyway, I don't label you, you, you know German but you're mm -hmm. saying it's actually easier to read because you studied this at Oxford obviously it's actually easier to read him in English than he is in the original German? In, in some parts. And so far as, like, as you know, like translations have one big, like, let's say, one big task, namely to convey the content. And yes. so they will break down sometimes sentences and make it more accessible than the original, as it is right. uh, with Kant the case. And maybe uh, a random fact, I haven't read that somewhere, but a good friend of mine who is also like invested in Kant studies, actually told me why Kant ended up writing such a like obscure style. Um, it is because he was thinking in Latin terms in so far as like German philosophy as a German war, like in, in German uh, is like, let's say 
can be traced back up until back to Luther. But in academia, it is actually a very, it was at that time a very recent uh, development. So um, it might be the case that Kant was just thinking in like a kind of Latin language system, which caused him to write as he has written his works. You, you, but, you mean but that, that allusion to this, this, this idea, you know, medieval scholastic works like mm -hmm. Thomas Aquinas and others uh, had this kind of, uh, is it almost a, an allusion to that, which again is very ironic as an Enlightenment thinker, which was precisely mm -hmm. the rejection of scholasticism. But you're saying the, the form of the, the language and the form was retained in some way in Kant. Uh, that's, that's, a, that's a possible explanation that I have come across. But um, maybe to sum up the last point, uh, we have uh, basically we have basically um, started to talk about, like, in in some like like in summary, Kant is in many ways not the most tolerant person, and therefore certainly not interested in such a kind of um, undertaking. Um, and to be fair, Sabri, for example, is not either. For him, as it is for everybody else in this discourse we have mentioned, any other theory of causality is highly problematic and in the final analysis, a kind of heretic account. So, um, and I think this, that's actually the most intriguing part because this overarching dialogue across cultures and uh, across even th uh, like theological boundaries has happened. Mm. So... In fact, I would even say that that this dialogue has taken place without the respective actors being conscious of it makes it even more authentic. Mm -hmm. All the more so since we see Muslims and Christians and even Jews on the one side exacting second, secondary causation and Muslims and Christians who deny that and who, al who have a kind of alliance to each other. Mm. So it shows us that there is not, not a kind of block thinking at work, that right. people just adhere to a kind of understanding because it comes from their own tradition or so. But right. the uncompromised search for truth is like the priority, regardless of who might have said it. Right. So go back to my appalling football analogy earlier, earlier on. People are not, in a, are not giving their loyalty to a, a particular team. They, they mm. are actually expressing their own sense of a search for truth. Uh, so mm. it's authentic, it's mm. sincere, it's not sectarian and partisan because of that. So that's, mm. a, very, that's a very interesting insight. What, what, to conclude, what, 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 next, this is obviously part one uh, mm. of, of uh, Kant and Islamic thought and, and, and so on. In our next... Uh, session. What would be the themes you were, we were discussing then? Do you think? Um, so we might like we. I would love to discuss the particular systematic discussion, the like the particular uh, debate between Kant and Mustafa Sabri Effendi in his work. Before that, we might um, like deal with a question we couldn't um, deal with today, namely the importance of the question of causality in general, why it did matter to so many people throughout mm -hmm. the centuries, and um, to understand basically what kind of criticism Mustafa Sabri Effendi has to offer uh, against Kant that might be 
like the center of our discussion, while we might basically introduce Mustafa Sabri Efendi um, and his, let's say, context and his intellectual biography uh, quickly at the beginning of that talk. Fascinating. Well, I'm very much looking forward to that. Uh, and this whole idea of civilizational dialogue, whether it's consciously or unconsciously uh, undertaken, is is fascinating. We're no longer living in a in our own particular global niches. We are now a, a global village, and it, the time is right to promote uh, these cross civilizational understandings. Observe that existed, uh, and mm. why, um, and, and how this matters for us going uh, forward. Uh, in an age of increasing popularism, and we've seen even uh, today in uh, even today in Italy, with the election of what the British media are calling a far right prime minister and a far right government, uh, the Sweden recently, and what may happen in France, um, you would know better than me what's going on in Germany. Um, you know, th th these aren't irrelevant; these political developments because they push against precisely what you're, you're talking about is these cross-civilizational interconnectedness and, and cross-fertilization, which talk, we speak of our common humanity, of course, mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and that recognition is quite important, I think, in, in this age that we live in now. Um, so, uh, well, thank you very much indeed, Amir, for your time, your expertise, uh, and your thought. Most interesting indeed. Really appreciate it. I'm, I know... Many of the viewers will appreciate it too. Uh, um, it's an honor to have you on the channel. And I very much look forward to uh, you coming back uh, in a few days, inshallah, um, to discuss uh, the topics you mentioned just now. So. Yeah. It was my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. And I'm looking forward to our second discussion, Paul. Inshallah. Until so next time. See you then. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.